good afternoon, everybody, and thank you very much for coming out on a Saturday to join the LSE Literary Festival and us on this panel uh, about fashion in food. I was asked to uh, say just a, a little bit about my own perspective uh, because I'm going to be the chair. My name is James Thornton. I'm the CEO of a group of lawyers organized as a charity, quite an unusual thing among lawyers, <laughs> and uh, we're called Client Earth. And the reason we called ourselves that is we really do take the earth as the client. So we work for the environment, for animals, plants, and people, <clears throat> out of offices in London, Brussels, and Warsaw. Started five years ago. We now have 60 people. And uh, we work on a whole variety of issues. For example, climate change, where we stop coal-fired power plants from being built. On sustainability of forests in Europe and Central Africa and Latin America. And also on food. One of our main programs for the entire five years has been the sustainability of seafood, working to make a good common fisheries policy so that there is fish left in the sea for the next generation, and also uh, creating, and you'll hear more about that from one of the panelists, the Sustainable Seafood Coalition, uh, a unique coming together of the uh, supermarkets and suppliers that uh, control 70% of the market for seafood in the U.K., to try and improve performance. So that's my angle on uh, this afternoon's uh, subject of food, uh, is, is sustainability. And one of the questions uh, some of the panelists will be talking about is whether sustainability in food is a fashion or whether it's something else. Now, food uh, is something that fascinates all of us. I think nothing else except sex uh, has the multifarious dimensionality for us of food. Uh, it uh, is central to our mating rituals. Food is central to our status displays, to our health, of course, and also to our fantasy life. Um, who doesn't dream of food? Uh, now, our panelists are, are very expert, uh, and uh, I think you'll enjoy what they have to say because they're um, able to talk about many of the dimensions of food. We have Claude Fischler, an important anthropologist uh, who will speak about our relationship with food. Matthew Fort, who is a well-known uh, and loved man in both print and TV as a critic and authority on food. We were to have Geeti Singh, who created the UK organic gastropub movement, but incredibly sadly, uh, she has food poisoning this afternoon. <laughs> uh, it is a deep irony <laughs> that she shares with the Queen today. <clears throat> Uh, and Katie Miller, a young marine scientist uh, who works on the Sustainable Seafood Coalition, has leaped into the breach uh, and will be able to talk about scientific aspects of the uh, and the working with uh, companies and trying to create sustainable seafood. And uh, then, last but far from least, Carl Warner, a unique still-life photographer uh, who uses food uh, in his work. And he'll be showing us some of his work, which, if you haven't seen it, I think will surprise you a lot. So uh, let me uh, turn to our uh, first panelist in just a moment, but uh, the, uh, I have a couple of reminders and uh, something about the running order. This event is being recorded, so please, everyone, turn your phones to silent mode. Uh, the podcast and video uh, will go online if all goes according to plan, I was told to say. Uh, now, the running order is that each panelist will talk... Uh, between 10 and 15 minutes. Uh, then we'll have some discussion among the panel, and then we'll open it to the participation of you, 
the audience. Uh, and we'll end at uh, 4.30. And as I'll remind you then, the books of our panelists uh, will be on sale, uh, and they will happily sign them for you. So uh, turning to our first panelist, uh, Claude Fischler. Let me tell you just slightly more about Claude. He's the director of research at the National Research Agency of France and also heads the Interdisciplinary Institute for Contemporary Anthropology in Paris. His main area of research is a comparative <clears throat> social science perspective on food and nutrition, their role and determinants in societies and cultures. His work covers the structure and function of cuisines, tastes and preferences, body image, and their evolution and change over time and space. So please, Claude. Well, thank you very much. I'm impressed with the presentation, the introduction. Um, <clears throat> I mean... The uh, title of this session is Fashion and Food, right? Yeah. So I'm going to discuss fashion. Some, some things about food as well, of course, because it's very special. So fashion, what is fashion? I mean, we, we live in a time of uh, rapid changes in uh, uh, our uh, food and eating habits. And... Um, Obviously, uh, fashion and fads are uh, a feature of the, of the time. Uh, of course, it sounds like a contradiction in terms that uh, there should be fashion and something that is the most basic biological need. It obviously means that we've reached a level of uh, uh, prosperity that allows us to... Uh, develop fantasies and uh, <clears throat> imagination and innovation in a way that is probably more uh, liberated than it has ever been uh, in, the, in the history of uh, humankind. The question is, it's pretty difficult when something changes to decide whether it is fad or actual change, durable change, whether it is just uh, fashion again, or whether it's going to establish itself as part of the uh, um, <clears throat> stable foodways. And I, I'm thinking of a number of examples of obvious fashions or fads. I remember that uh, in, in the 70s that all of a sudden uh, green pepper was everywhere in the plates and the dishes. Where has all this green pepper gone? I mean... I don't see it. I've seen so-called red pepper, which is not pepper, and all colors and all brands of pepper, but uh, green pepper has gone apparently down the drain to a large extent. And um, actually, when Nouvelle Cuisine emerged in the 70s, this was the talk of the time. Is it just a fad? Is it just about, so the joke would go, large plates, small portions, and long bills? Um, and also undercooked meat or fish, that sort of thing. But actually, it was really very basic change, and it's, it stayed, it's actually spread. What was it about? If you look just at the gastronomic part of it, side of it, or the restaurant side of it, you see that it was a very fundamental change, if only in the style of service. That is, instead of bringing dishes to the table and serving guests, you were served plates. And so the cooks and chefs would produce plates, not dishes anymore. So the arrangement, the service, the waiting, 
was all subject to this general process, which is fundamentally the uh, essential change we have experienced, one of the essential changes we have experienced and are experiencing now, which is individualization. Everything about food has become more individualized, not just about food, mind you, marriage, um, all a, a number of areas in life have become individualized. You can, sh- you can, you can choose your uh, career, supposedly. You can choose your spouse. Uh, and you are responsible and free for choices you make about your food, which is a novel thing, come to think of it. If you look at traditional societies, there's not much space for uh, idiosyncrasies and, uh, and preferences and... Uh, there's commensality, as we call it in the social sciences. That is, people tend to eat together. And he or she, mostly he, who eats alone is subject to stigma in most uh, cases. Um, because, because, for a number of reasons, there are all kinds of suspicions associated with eating alone, making one's own choices. Uh, if anything, why doesn't this guy eat with the rest of us? Does he Eating, is he eating more than his share? Is he, has he poisoned the food or bewitched something? Uh, there are all kinds of suspicions going on. Um, I, I, I have an anecdote that I heard recently from a friend, a colleague who teaches sociology in the west of France, and his father, he's a, he has an Algerian background. His father confe- confessed to him that there had been another woman before his mother. So... The guy says, but dad, why didn't you marry her? He says, well, there was a problem with the father. Says, what kind of problem? Okay, he saw me once eating alone, standing up on the village square. Eating alone, standing, is not done. So you wouldn't give your, your daughter to a guy who behaves like this. So I guess if this rule applied in this country or the United States nowadays, there there would be only bachelors. (laughs) And so this process of individualization goes faster in certain cultures than in others. Global change, globalization, it's obviously global, but it has local modulations and differences. And what I'm trying to say is this, there may be fads and fashion and everything. They can occur either in gastronomy or in health issues. Food fads are mostly, I would say, food scares. And I'm not talking about uh, issues happening currently. Uh, but um, you can think of uh, various issues that have keep, keep happening in the last 20, 30, 40 years. And there has, there has been time for, uh, um, I don't know, um, a fad was oat bran. Remember oat bran? A negative fad was, uh, um, um, what do they call them? Uh, carbs, they say in the American way. You know, carbohydrates. You had to flee away from everything that included uh, carbs. And after that, we discovered omega-3 fatty acids. That is about 20 years after having uh, learned that uh, uh, or, or internalized the uh, notion that uh, fat was uh, terrible and um, uh, these sorts of things. But the differences between cultures are very stable. That is the fascinating part. There are differences that we can trace back to the Middle Ages between 
countries that are only separated by what you insist, I mean, the British insist on calling the English Channel for some reason. <laughs> and, I mean, we're just, what, 50 kilometers apart or something like that, and yet the differences are amazing. Uh, let me give you an example uh, about the stability. If you take the work by historians, by uh, a British historian um, Stearns, uh, who has done a history of fat and food, or food and fat, etc. He shows that, uh, he and other historians show that there has been a constant difference in attitudes toward food on both sides of the, <coughs> of the channel. Um, for instance, as early as the first English cookbook, which is the form of curry, I don't remember whether it's 14th century or 15th century, but anyway, it's old, in the form of curry, analyzed by French historian Flandrin, compared to French cookbooks and other cookbooks across Europe at the same time, there were more dishes, more recipes in the English cookbook that had sweet ingredients, uh, sweet-tasting ingredients than any other one, except, I, I remember, if I remember correctly, the Venetian cookbook. Um, so the English sweet tooth... Uh, is a consistent trend towards, uh, across centuries, and um, the uh, structure of, of the meal is another very specific trend. On the, it's not even a trend, it's a feature. On the French side, uh, let me give you an example. Um, we have excellent statistics now that show us... Uh, we have time-use surveys, for instance, <coughs> both in Britain, in the United States, and France, in which people, thousands of people, fill out diaries uh, about everything they do over one day or two days, etc., and so on. So we know everything about eating patterns, and a lot at any rate. So I can tell you this. Every single day in the week at 1 o'clock, 50% of the French are eating. The peak hour is 12.30 with 54.1% of the population eating. Now, if you look at the British peak, it's 1.10 p.m., and there's only 17.6% of the British eating. Okay? And since this is a literary event, I may have a quote for you to show you how stable the thing is. Um, I was, I was not planning to use slides, but I have one I have to read from. There is the French um, author, novelist, and diplomat Paul Morand in 1930, <coughs> writes a little book about New York and says, basically, that in New York nobody goes home for lunch, people eat on the spot while working, or they, they have eateries, uh, popular eateries, where for a very cheap price, relatively good quality food is served, meatballs in particular, he says, and people stand in line with their hats on their head and people in the back are putting pressure on them to eat faster. And Morin writes in a very French way, I mean, with looking at the thing with his uh, French cultural uh, uh, spectacles, he says... Um, lined up like animals in a, in a, um, 
in the, I forget the, the, the word for where the cows are, you know, like cows are lined up, etc. Then I have another sym- uh, symmetrical testimony from uh, another witness, an American sociologist writing in the 50s about the French after having interviewed uh, 250 uh, prominent French people, etc. He says, Frenchmen tend to be rigid in all matters associated with feeding. There is practically no variation in les heures de repas, meal times, of any region, whereas, that's the part I like best, for many non-Frenchmen, non-Frenchmen being obviously Americans, <laughs> feeding at precisely the same hour each day is associated rather with the zoo. <laughs> So here's for some deep-rooted cultural difference. The French eat meals. They eat at regular times. They eat together because if 50% of the population is eating at the same time, it's pretty likely that they're also, for a part, eating together. And we have this um, verbatim from an interview of this lady. What did you have for lunch? And she says, well, I didn't have lunch. I bought something from a bakery and I ate it on the street. <coughs> so that, actually, she didn't say, I didn't have lunch. She, did, she said, as we would say in French, I didn't eat. So <laughs> eating something standing on the street is not eating. She probably went home that evening uh, and told her husband, let's have dinner. I didn't eat today. <laughs> you see, so eating has to um, uh, reconcile, has to, to be... A a, a real meal has to include conditions of time, space, people, structure of the meal. The other feature of the French meal... Claude, one one minute. I'm I'm, I'm, I'm through. Uh, uh, (laughs) That uh, it has to be composed of a number of sequences. Uh, It has to be, in our jargon, uh, diachronic and not synchronic. That is, you don't put everything at the same time on the table. Those are some very stable structures. So fashion exists... Fads exist, trends exist, but underlying those, there are some relatively stable, uh, permanent features. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, it gives us, uh, I think, a, a great uh, framework uh, in which to have our conversation uh, this afternoon. Now, our, our second speaker is uh, Matthew Fort, who was a food and drink editor of The Guardian from '89 to 2006. Um, he's written for a wide variety of British, American, and French publications and has won many awards, including the Restaurateurs Association Food Writer of the Year. He has written books on food, and we've seen him on TV in Greatest Dishes in the World, uh, The Forager's Field Guide, and currently uh, as a judge on BBC's The Great British Menu. Uh, Matthew? Well, good afternoon, everybody. Um, I... I, I... I'm very glad you brought, drew attention to the importance of, uh, of food and sex because um, they are clearly they are the two um, activities without which the future of the human race is doomed. <laughs> and I have to say, at my time of life, that food tends to be a slightly more dependable source of pleasure than the other. <laughs> Therefore, clearly in my own life, food has a, a, a has an enormous influence and enormous importance. But I would argue that um, 
contrary to what, um, what the, indeed the statement about uh, our discussion this afternoon, is that um, we are not obsessed with food. We are not nearly obsessed enough with food. That fashions and fads are such transitory things that only apply to a very, very narrow portion of society. Um, it is true that newspapers, magazines, uh, television, even radio, the internet has all been corrupted by food. Food is everywhere. There is a tsunami of articles, books, programs, uh, blogs, podcasts, anything you like. Food crops up. Um, and yet, um, this, it seems to me, is... Uh, a sort of self-defining audience of those people who are interested in food. And it is largely a middle-class audience uh, of, of uh, not food obsessives, but people for whom you know, food has this form of, uh, is, is a form of self-expression. Um, However, if you look more deeply at the situation, you will see if you, if you follow the history of food in the media since the last war, and indeed before the war, it is actually the history of well-educated middle-class people talking to well-educated middle-class people. Food, in fact, is a form of social exclusion. If you, if you do not know the difference between balsamic vinegar and malt vinegar, you're not part of our club. If you can't, do not know the difference between um, extra virgin olive oil and diesel oil, goodness gracious me, we're not going to be inviting you around to our home. Absolutely not. And if you look at the, the panoply of our food heroes and heroines from 1945 onwards, Elizabeth David, Jane Grigson, uh, Claudia Roden, um, uh, on television you have Rick Stein, you have... Um, uh, Jamie, Jamie Oliver is a slightly uh, a difficult point to argue. But they are, in fact... And indeed, indeed myself, and I wouldn't put myself in their, in their, um, uh, in their league at all, these are all people who have been to university, who, who read books, who have a command of their, of their subject matter, and who talk to their own tribe. And that means they have been excluded from this, um, from, from this, this happy um, paradise of food lovers, uh, really the large percentage of, of the population. And... The indication of that is, the consequence of that is, it's all too evident for us today, um, we have uh, an epidemic of obesity, particularly among children, overweight, obese children. We have the rise in type 2 diabetes, in heart-related diseases, still the largest, um, diet-related diseases, still the largest killer in this country. This, is this really a sign of people for whom, you know, those, those delis in Aberystwyth or pop-up restaurants in Rugeley in the Midlands or um, you know, gatherings of like-minded souls to discuss the new season's olive oil in, in Hull. It seems to me that all the available evidence suggests that indeed that for most people's food choices are dictated not by fad, not by fashion, not by passion, but by necessity. Uh, indeed, if I could just quote in the last week... The, this seems to me to sum up, the, in a sense, the, the true situation of food in this country. Um, because it was uttered by Sir Michael Wilshaw, the chief inspector of schools. And in his advice to people who want to be governors of schools, he said, too much time is spent looking at the quality of school lunches and not enough at maths or English. 
it doesn't seem to occur to him that it doesn't matter what qualification you have, it's not much use to you if you're dead by the time you're 42. You know, that food is, in fact, is utterly critical to the well-being of both, uh, both individuals and of society, but this is simply not recognised either by the uh, 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 media, which is, let's face it, um, entirely metropolitanly based. I mean, if you want to look at the range of food writers, people who write recipes, and people who write um, restaurant criticism, the people who commission these people to, to write about restaurants and, and recipes, the people who commission programmes in television, where do they all live? They all live in London. You know, London, you know, the, uh, this, this idea that, you know, that the whole country is a wonderful, um, pudinating mass of pop-up restaurants, of, uh, of farmers' markets, of merry get-togethers of right-minded people, is entirely the, uh, the, the, the imagination of people who actually have absolutely no contact with, with, the, with act, the country outside London. So far from being uh, the, the obsessed with food, as I think it's all too easy to think that we are, I would say that, that food has become simply the, um, the product, really, uh, of social pressures. Now, these social pressures go back to the last war. It was during the last war that women escaped from the tyranny of the home of, of uh, looking after children and cooking for their husbands and went out in the fields and factories. And at the end of the war, weren't they going to go back there? No, they weren't. Uh, and um, were men going to go and take their place? Oddly enough, they weren't either. So in the immediate post-war period, you, 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 you had a, a disorder in society. At the same time, various other things started happening as well. That the, the, the retailing, that supermarkets began to take control from the late 1960s onwards. The control of supermarkets is, you know, is an inexorable rise because they actually... Um, uh, meet the people's needs in terms of people who need to, who want to work and who only want to shop once a week. Um, the, um, the, the shopping, the once a week shop becomes, becomes the pattern. Um, at the same time, you have uh, convenience meals, ready meals, um, becoming, you know, the, the technology begins in, in the late 1950s, and again you see an exponential rise, which goes on to this day. This country has the last penetration of microwaves of any per family of any country in the world except for America and Japan. Um, and at the same time, uh, increasing uh, expectation of the, the rise in the standard of living, of which incidentally food is not really a part, um, um, requires two people to go out and work. I'd be interested to know how many people in this room have a partner and both of them work. Um, and in order to sustain, they pay the mortgage, pay for the holidays, pay for the white goods, pay for the cars, pay for travel, pay for all the luxuries, indeed even pay for the food. Um, and so, you know, these two things, have, it seems to me, is that, that, that there is absolutely no way out of this. That while we may talk about food, while we may think about food, while we may know much more about food than our, than our parents and our grandparents... The amount of the, the, the level of interaction with food, and the amount of food that we, that we actually cook, the number of times we sit down and share food with one another is actually diminishing. And all the available, I'm afraid, all the available statistics suggest not only is this the case, but is, in, is increasingly so.
So while we admire the French who sit down with such regularity to eat their meals, and dare I suggest that is a vision of French society which belongs to the past, uh, a country where I'm afraid that rather like, uh, rather like it's going to be going down our route towards um, uh, eating, eating meals at, their, at your desk or certainly not sharing food or also, sorry, also cooking um, uh, ready meals, of which actually there's always been a great tradition in France, the, um, uh, the pâtissier, the, um, the, 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 the shops that sell all those delicious dainties that you pass with your nose pressed up against the window. The French have always been eating ready meals. They like to dress them up in a slightly different way. But I think that you know, this, these, are, these are forces which unfortunately are endemic in modern society and there's absolutely no way out. So food, fad, fashion, frivolity, yes... In the final analysis, in my view, is that like, food really is, is far too important a subject to be taken seriously. Uh-huh. And, that is a, and that is the problem. We take it so seriously, we forget about the means of communication. We forget about those people who are excluded from the passions that we serve. And that those are the people to whom we should be, in fact, directing our, um, our, our thoughts and our language and possibly social engineering. Um, that's about it, really. That's my. I lob a few hand grenades into the placid waters of the meeting, and uh, and we'll see where that leads. Well, uh, I, I think if you'll if you allow me a, a pun, Matthew, that you've given us quite a lot to chew on. Um, <laughs> I couldn't resist. Um, now, our, our next uh, panelist uh, is uh, Katie Miller. Uh, uh, Katie is a marine scientist, uh, and she focuses on sustainable seafood, uh, and uh, she is the advisor to the British uh, Sustainable Seafood Coalition, uh, working within uh, Client Earth. Uh, Katie? Thank you. Um, <clears throat> well, this is certainly an interesting topic to me, and the thing that I think that I've realized is that I am one of these awful people that follows the fashions. I love all that stuff. I love going to like, the trendy bars and you know, eating the most popular foods and hanging out in the cool places. Ah, excuse me. Uh, is it possible to get Katie's mic turned up uh, or for you to speak louder? People are having a little hard time. It is on. Uh, yep. It is on. I can see there's red light. Ah, there we are. You, you? Can everyone hear me? Oh, great. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. Um, is that better? Can I? Hold it up. Okay, then you'll see me shaking, though. <laughs> That's all right. You'll do fine. <laughs> um, so this is a inter- uh, topic that interests me anyway, um, but... What I want to come and tell you about is that I believe that sustainability isn't just a fashion because if, and I'm going to give the example of the Sustainable Seafood Coalition, if we, um, for example, eat all the fish in our sea, then there won't be any for our children and their children to eat. So it's not just a fashion, it makes good business sense. Um, So we need either to think about it ourselves or we need the people that we buy our fish from to think of it for us. And so that's kind of where um, our work on the sustainable seafood coalition comes in. We're a coalition of businesses um, which was founded by Client Earth two years ago and it's working towards a vision that all fish and seafood in the UK that's sold is from a sustainable source. So it started um, two years ago. There was a few things that were happening. One of them was um, Hughes Fish Fight. So everyone's probably heard about it because it's just been on recently again. But two years ago was the first one. He was focusing on discards. So he... um, particularly sought out Tesco's. I don't know if anyone saw this, but he sought them out and um, kind of almost 
picked on them for saying that they weren't doing enough and they were, uh, they were sourcing from the wrong people. Um, at the same time, Client Earth had, or just before, Client Earth had produced a report on labelling. So the kind of mislabeling that you can see, or the misleading labelling that you can see on a tin of tuna or whatever, where it says it's um, sourced from a sustainable fishery or, or responsibly farmed or any of those. I think the best one was uh, on a packet and it said um, this was fished in a way that protects the marine environment and that was on a dead fish. So, <laughs> <laughs> so the, um, the labelling report and the work that we were doing on discards with the rest of my team were working on the common fisheries policy with the kind of legislation and they were finding it really frustrating that actually all the legislation is going to take years. The legal side of things takes a long time to, kind of, to actually go through law so we wanted to find a solution and we set up the Sustainable Seafood Coalition with um, lots of the big retailers at the time and the Hughes Fish Fight were part of it as well. And the aim is, well, they, came, they all sat around a table and the, I think the biggest thing to take from this is that it's a load of competitors. So we've got all the major retailers sitting around the same table trying to agree on something and they want to create these voluntary codes of conduct where they all have a minimum kind of criteria that they will all adhere to. And they're all going to adopt each of the codes that, they, that we all produce. So the first one that we thought we'd focus on is the labelling code. And the aim is that when you um, go into any of these shops, so whether it's Tesco's or Waitrose or M&S, and it says that it's sustainably sourced, then it's going to mean the same thing in each of those places. And that's been quite a challenge. So the first code was the labelling code, and it's been going on for two years, and we're just now at the stage of signing it off. And that's because... Um, they are competitors. So one member might say, actually, I, I really think sustainability should mean that it's, for example, MSC certified. Whereas another one would be like, well, you know, actually, I take really good precautions and I think that this should mean, this lower level should mean sustainability. So there's been a lot of kind of, it's been a long road. And the good thing is for the consumers that when it all gets implemented, it's going to be really easy to make a decision and to go in because they, they've agreed to just use the terms responsibility or sustainability. So responsibility is where, for example, it might not be from a sustainable source itself, but it's a kind of um, reflection on what the business is doing towards it. So they might be engaging in a fisheries programme or something. So where the fishery isn't sustainable in itself, it's much more important, we think, for the retailer to use their leverage. Like you said, there's 70% of the UK market that's cut covered here. So we want them to use their leverage to improve that fishery so it becomes sustainable. We don't want them to, to, to just drop the whole thing and, you know, th those people are still going to fish those fish. Um, so then that's the first code. And the other code that we're working on at the moment is the sourcing code. So we want these retailers to also work together to, make, to think about what they're sourcing before they get a chance to label it. Um, and I haven't mentioned as well, it's not just retailers in this. We've also got the processors, the suppliers, and the food service involved. So we're trying to spread it over um, all of the fish industry to get a really good result. And the difference with the Sustainable Seafood Coalition to some other kind of government-led um, coalitions is that this one's unique because it's the businesses that are doing it. They're all, they're all sitting around the table and saying what they want us to do. So... We, um, sorry, I've just gone blank suddenly. Uh, <laughs> we're, I'm just going to wrap up there. <laughs> we're about to release the labelling code, I was about to say, and um, it's going to be available for pub public feedback. So if you want to look at it, at the moment it's all kind of in legal jargon. So it's actually, 
I mean, it's taken me a long time to get my head around it, and all of our lawyers, Client Earth, as James mentioned, is mainly lawyers, and then there's a few of us scientists kind of saying, well, it doesn't really make sense, you can't just use the legal terms, and then the lawyers tell us that we have to use the legal terms because it's law, and then we say it's not law because it's voluntary, and it all goes on and on and on, and then we do the same with the retailers, and um, so we're going to have a public feedback consultation in which there's the legal kind of the code, and then there's the kind of friendlier version in which um, my mum's going to understand. So um, we'd like to hear everyone's feedback, and that's going to be in the next month or so. So if you kind of keep in touch with Clients Earth, we'll be um, keeping people posted about that. Is there a website? There, well, <laughs> that's a loaded question. We do have a website that we're writing at the moment. So at the moment, the SSC is hosted on Client Earth, but we're having a, a website that will be called the sustainableseafoodcoalition.org. And... Um, the code and the website will come out at the same time, so we're, we're trying. So we can go there. If you want to read the code, we go on to... It will be on there. Clientearth.org yeah. will get you there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, thank you, Katie, particularly for being willing three minutes before uh, this event uh, to agree to come on stage. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, our uh, next uh, panelist is Carl... Warner, uh, who is a professional still-life photographer, and he's based in London. Over the past 10 years, Carl has been developing a body of work making landscapes out of food. Uh, This work has been featured in magazines and newspapers all over the world, as well as advertising campaigns and commissions from some of the biggest brand names in the food industry. And Carl is going to share some of his art uh, with us this afternoon. Thank you. Mic working, is it? You can hear me? That's great. Um, is it possible just to dim the lights down at the top to make it brighter for the slides <coughs> you see? Um, I've been labelled as professional still life photographer, which sounds a bit boring, really. <laughs> um, I'm a foodscape artist. That's a much grander title. <laughs> uh, so I basically make... Um, does my clicker work? I make landscapes out of food. <laughs> Some of you may have seen this work before. If not, then... Um, uh, this is the first time we normally get the, the thing which I call the pleasant deception. People look at the scene, think it's real, then double take and realise it's all made out of food. So this is, as you can see, a broccoli forest, which is uh, uh, with, with bread mountains in the background, cauliflower clouds, um, and there's some sugar which is being poured out and dropped in to look at the waterfall. <laughs> um, a lot of my work kind of relates back to the Wizards of Oz, actually. It's a sort of yellow brick road kind of uh, thing going on here. Um, I'm going to whiz through these because there's quite a few slides to see and I've only just got the short time to talk and I'm also going to talk about a little bit about what I'm doing beyond just making pretty pictures out of food. Uh, this is the very first picture I did which was some portobello mushrooms I found in a market one day and uh, I saw these and sort of held them up and thought, gosh, they look like, um, they look like alien trees in some alien world. I wasn't on drugs or anything at all. It was just something that kind of... <laughs> came out and I thought I'm going to take them back to my studio and see if I can make them look like they're part of a scene in a, in a real landscape. So by putting the, the camera really low, uh, I've got some beans and couscous and things on the table here, uh, a piece of mackerel I shot separately for the sky, see so a classic mackerel sky, <laughs> and images that are made out of food. And I started to develop this technique, I've been doing it for about 13 years now, this is a smoked salmon sea. 
Um, you can see the texture of salmon, smoked salmon, is amazing that when lit properly, it, it kind of looks like the texture of water. Even the sky here is a piece of salmon. It's a side of salmon. You can see the scales and you can see the fin where the skin is split in the, on the sunset horizon there. So this is um, dark soda bread uh, in the some potatoes in the foreground, some dill for the trees. Uh, some chap came to an exhibition of mine and said, oh, I've, I've been here before, mate. I know where you took that. <laughs> I don't know why I was from up north. There's nothing like that. I'm from Liverpool, so I shouldn't really kind of... And he said, uh, that's taken in the Algarve. He said, I stayed at a villa just down the road from there. I know exactly where you took the picture. <laughs> so I said, unless you were sort of in a, a villa made of cheese with a sort of a, a pepperoni roof, I don't think so. So I've kind of gone on to develop. I didn't really realise how many sort of things I could do with food. But, you know, here we've got coconut haystacks and a horseradish sort of tree here and just working with fresh herbs. Uh, Italian scenes, this is your classic pesto sauce with basil leaves in the corner. Pine nuts, we've got garlic in the little sacks being unloaded and this is the farmer unloading, going up to the village that's made out of parmesan. Uh, even the clouds are mozzarella balls. Um, <laughs> The farmer gets to the, the market, and then you've got all of this food here, which, you know, it's amazing how, well, it's very interesting for me, how a particular location made out of the food from that location actually fits. So making uh, an Italian scene out of Asian ingredients doesn't work, and vice versa. So it's very interesting the way the landscape is actually manipulated and changed by man because of the food that they're growing and eating. And so the location, the landscape, and the plates all seem to gel together. I'm very interested in how that sort of element of food culture works, you know, on an aesthetic level. And what I'm doing now is working, so I'm going to talk about at the same time, is working with a company called IDEO in uh, uh, in San Francisco recently, we've been sitting down talking about how we can use my work as a visual uh, medium and as a vehicle to actually get children to look at food differently because we've got these big problems. The CDC has declared obesity ep epidemic. We've got to do something about it. Jamie Oliver tried with a load of uh, um, university students. Stupid people couldn't, couldn't get grips with that at all. They all just went back to the pizzas and the burgers. And so it didn't work. So you've got to kind of really aim towards the kids. You've got to get kids to be educated. And so we're looking at uh, doing um, an initiative for uh, nutritional literacy and food education in order to get children at whatever level of, of uh, income levels, middle class, poor people, uh, to look at food and look at what they're putting in their bodies and tackle it from that, that point of view from a very early stage. So, um, sorry I digress slightly, but I'll come back to a little bit of that. So this is the Italian scene, this uh, game with the um, fruit balloons and a cart, a little kind of village made out of cheese, more broccoli trees, of course, which is a very easy thing for people to uh, realise. Um, not only vegetables, but fish. Uh, all sustainable fish, mind you, I'll tell you, Katie. Nothing, you know, <laughs> pollock, coli, uh, sea bass, mackerel. Uh, this is a Swedish kind of scene that I shot for a company called Findus who do seafood products. So uh, this is a little sort of archipelago as you get on the Swedish coastline there, little kind of huts made out of seaweed roofs and red peppers. Um, this all starts out from a creative point of view. What I do is I come up with an idea or I'm approached with a brief or whatever. Uh, I've done books, I've done my own things as well, but I come up with a drawing and the client sort of says, oh, I like this one, I like this one, whatever. And then we start off in the studio with a load of tin foil on the table. Uh, we had a camera crew there, as you can see that day from Reuters. And I've got a couple of um, marrows on the table which I start playing around with. I work with a team of model makers and food stylists who help me build this. Uh, 
Very smelly day in the studio, as you can imagine. I lost my sense of smell about five years ago after a bang on the head, so I don't have to suffer that problem anymore, which is quite good. Um, you can see the scene building up, laying down these fillets of herring into form waves, and uh, me looking a bit puzzled at whether this is actually going to work or not, and the client's going to looking all of me, <laughs> client getting equally worried of the thousands of pounds they're spending. Um, so here we can see us laying all the fish out to finally get to an image which, put into Photoshop, give it a little bit of a blue hint and tidy up some of the bloody edges and bits and pieces and you have a landscape that's made out of fish. Not only fish, but meat, vegetarian nightmares, um, <laughs> parma ham for, for uh, mortadella, uh, your speck, all different kind of things. So I've just found that I've been able to use food like a painter uses paint on a palette. So there's me at work with salami and stuff. It's a bizarre thing to do, isn't it? Yeah. So they haven't locked me up yet, so I'll keep going. Um, an, an Asian scene of everything here is the boat is all that looks like wood, but it's all kind of uh, bits of um, licorice roots and various roots and things that they use in uh, Asian cuisine. Uh, the little fortune cookie on the left there looks like a piece of carpet folded up. Obviously, that's an American invention. But uh, pak choy and, and kei choy for the sky and for the sea. It goes on. <laughs> Celery forest, uh, undersea worlds with dragon food as fish and yams floating through the surface there. You can see that, by the way, that, that the surface of the water is actually a sheet of glass. There's us loading the sheet of the glass in. There's my model maker, Paul, who's a bit of a rough diamond, as you can see. And, he's, and then we're chopping the yams off and then putting the chopped off bits on top of the glass so that we're creating this underwater scene and the dibbly-dabbly glass looks like the water or the, the action of sunlight through water so you create this underwater illusion. And again, all of this is food and we come back to the picture. And you can see how kids really jump in on this and just love it and, you know, thankfully adults too. So it sparks the imagination. If you get kids to think differently about food and change their relationship with food... I mean, a pile of chips with, with tomato ketchup on, kids go, yum, yum, yum. But I could make that look like a pile of fingers after a, a dreadful road accident. Um, <laughs> you know, kids would look at a pile, of, we'd look at a pile of asparagus with uh, Parmesan shavings and a dribble of balsamic vinegar and, yeah, sorry, uh, Matthew, but, um, you know, go yum, yum. But kids will go yuck. So why do they go yuck? They're going yuck because it's an aesthetic thing that's been inbuilt by advertising and lots of other things. So we can tackle these things visually and aesthetically and change their relationship <coughs> with them, get them to be more adventurous. If they see, see asparagus and think, oh, they're rockets in one of Carl Warner's pictures or one of this vehicle that I can't too, talk too much about that we're looking to do in the States, then it becomes a different kind of animal for people to, for children to respond to the, the beauty of food and be excited about it and want to try it, hopefully, and want to engage with it and see what's going on with it and then perhaps look at cooking. Some of our earliest childhood memories of food are the things that kind of dictate a lot of what we, how we feel towards food. And uh, I think I'll come up, if I've got a quick bit of time. We'll make uh, it. Five minutes. Five minutes, yeah. sorry. Okay. So London skyline here, pretty obvious. Yeah. What can I say? Uh, Billy Connolly made out of food. Um, Billy was actually made out of haggis for his face. He's got neats and tatties, little uh, parsnip nose, a, a potato hair, and a, and a bacon and asparagus jacket. Um, somebody then told me that Pamela Stevenson turned him into a vegetarian. I don't know whether that's true, but I think he's going to be pretty upset about finding himself made out of haggis. Um, the great Giuseppe Archimbaldo, who's heralded as the sort of founder of uh, surrealism, really, uh, was back in the 16th century doing pictures, portraits made out of food. Mm -hmm. So this is my little sort of homage to him. 
Um, I did a couple, done a couple of books with an American publisher, so I did some American scenes, again, the drawing, and then the actual thing, you can see the bread. This is, again, the Midwest, so it's beef and cereal, so we've got beef jerkies for the uh, telegraph poles. We've even got a big slab of ribeye steak for the sky. Can you see that? Yeah. And then you've got the bread and, and the cereals and some mushrooms for tyres and things like that, all set up in a, uh, another one, little sort of cowboy scene. But um, uh, oxtail and a big ribeye steak slab for the mountains, and you've got your zucchinis and uh, uh, cucumbers for the, um, the, the cactus and stuff like that. Uh, so plugging my book, first book, uh, happy to sign outside if my publishers have brought some along. Uh, Food Landscapes, which is telling you all about how they were done, behind-the-scenes pictures, what inspired the pictures, and how I'm developing it. My new book, which is for children, not a particularly healthy eating cover, I know. <laughs> but it's all about balance. You know, There's nothing wrong with saying to kids, you, say, you, can't, you can't eat chocolate, you can't eat sweets. No, it's in about moderation and balance. We should be kind of encouraging them to be you know, not demonising food, but you know, occasionally people do want to go out and have a McDonald's. And that's fair enough, but as long as they don't do it all the time and as long as they kind of you know, try other things as well. Uh, so, Candy Cottage, this was on the uh, BBC One show, uh, the One Show with uh, Phil Tufnell, the great art critic, came along to, uh, <laughs> to, to interview me and film me doing this, this work. Uh, little garlic village here, um, yeah, uh, ice cream, I mean, you know, it's endless, the chocolate train... <laughs> I had a chocolate train when I was five years old. I had this one early food experience, and they, I had a chocolate train with Swiss rolls and bits and pieces. Uh, my grandparents and my parents were there, and uh, the first thing I ate was the orange funnel on the top, which is actually made of marzipan, and I threw up violently <laughs> and uh, never got to eat the train. So years later, I got my own back. So, uh, a little, can you see a little bunny rabbit in the corner as well there? It's a little homage to the Turner picture of smoke and steam. With the... <laughs> you see, I, you know, I probably have taken drugs in the past. It's obviously kind of, you know, just, I just don't remember it. So this is a little bit from the new book. Uh, I've written poems to go with each picture, so they're little engaging little poems for parents to read the kids and sort of just to sort of introduce them to things. So it's, what's that, Daddy? What's that? You know, what does that taste like? You know, how do you cook that? All things like that can come from from this vehicle, and this is what I'm going to hopefully spend uh, the rest of my life doing, which is kind of using this, this work to be some sort of, of a transmedia vehicle that will educate children and get them to think differently about food and bring about some sort of level of nutritional literacy, which I think is sadly lacking, and it, it overcomes the, the middle-class problem, I think, that Matthew was talking about, mm. and gets kids at all ages and all walks of life getting interested in food, and if you can do that from an early age, by the time they grow up, they can be doing this with their kids. Uh, so plug in my book again. So that's me. <laughs> Thank you, Carl. I have to say that, that uh, I'm sure that surprised everybody. Uh, it's uh, uh, astoundingly original uh, way of looking at food and of looking at the way of working with kids. I mean, uh, fantastic. You know, uh, I, I want to eat all your photographs. <laughs> uh, maybe uh, since you raised the uh, point of uh, communicating with kids about food, uh, uh, to ask the panel a question of, uh, uh, for everybody um, about how we communicate about food. Uh, I mean, Matthew raised it as well. Everyone raised it, really. But um, if we now have certain food fads going on, uh, and uh, perhaps the wealthiest uh, in the society are eating uh, more healthily, but over 60% of the population in this country as adults are obese. 
how do we communicate better about food? How do we get a discussion going about what's really important uh, so that we move towards health rather than obesity, towards sustainability? You know, what should we be doing? How should we be communicating? Uh, Matthew? Well, um, I think you know, the sad fact is, is that most people learn to the, about their relationships with food to eat and to cook from their parents. And if their parents don't do it, then who will they learn from? As I've indicated, I think, that I think since the last war, the pressures upon, uh, upon parents, upon knowledge being passed down from one generation to the next, is gradually being squeezed out. And the only way to stop this, and this is where Jamie Oliver was absolutely right, is in schools. And you have to... And this is why I think... You know, and this is why I find that the remarks of the chief inspector of schools incredibly depressing, because mm. he simply fails to recognise the importance of food in the, just the, the simple health of the nation, if you like, because that is where this, uh, this, this, this problem needs to be addressed. Uh, you know, it's the only place where, you know, where, where children can be got together, uh, can be inculcated about food. They should be given, in my view, they should be given no choice about, about well, they should be, sorry, I think you should do away with the entire core curriculum, replace it entirely with cooking lessons, through which you can incidentally teach you know, geography, physics, uh, biology, chemistry, maths, um, English, religion, anything you choose. Actually, everything comes together on the plate. So, I mean, I think, you know, that's where it needs to start, in schools. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. I agree. But I think for some people, and I'm going to talk about fish again because I, I am quite obsessed with them, um, fish aren't just quite difficult things to think about anyway. People don't like to cook them. The government are telling us to eat two portions of fish a week, but uh, you know, how do you do it and what do you eat? So one of the things that we'll be working on with the, the members of the Sustainable Seafood Coalition coming forward um, will be getting them to kind of communicate in a kind of coherent way. So obviously, again, they're competitors, so they're not going to all say, why don't we all eat coli this week? And, but it, there will be some sort of strategy where you can go into a restaurant and you see that the special of the day is, for example, coli. And then you go into, the, you go into Tesco's and you see that they've got an offer on coli. And then you see on our website or through um, the Great British Chef's website or whoever it might be that there's lots of recipes that make it kind of much more achievable. And so I think it's kind of got to be a kind of an approach coming from all angles. And for kids, it's so important that they get that from somewhere, so whether it's school or the parents or, mm-hmm. or whatever. But also we have to remember that adults don't have it and we're the ones that are living now, you know? Where did you get it from? Where did you, how did you become <laughs> impassioned with fish? <laughs> well, I like living, living fish. <laughs> you mean you don't eat them? Yeah. Um, I eat some, but I must admit, I didn't eat fish till I was about in my 20s. Um, but, but you were swimming with them. But fish. I swam with them, and yeah. I, I learned scuba dive, and I worked in the diving industry. And, and I don't think we shouldn't eat fish. I think we definitely should. It's just that we need to do it properly so that we can carry on swimming with them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. Um, Claude, on this uh, kind of... Uh, your perspective on this education, how do we get beyond mere fashion and have a serious discussion? Well, okay, education, I have two questions for Carl. Question one, was Archimboldo an inspiration to you? Mm, yes, Obviously, yes. Right? Yeah. Well, the difference is Archimboldo was a painting, uh, he wasn't using actual food, and you are. And my memories from my childhood in the uh, 50s and the early 60s is when I would uh, draw stripes and my uh, mashed potatoes, someone, some adult would always uh, 
<coughs> come and tell me one does not play with food. So mm -hmm. you're, you're making mm -hmm. a career of playing with food. Mm -hmm. What happens to the food once you've used it? Uh, well, a lot of it gets sort of eaten. <laughs> we, we have a quite a big crew that we work with, so I kind of divide up what's left over. Some of it's got super glue and pins stuck to it, so that gets thrown away. Um, I occasionally get some very unpleasant emails from people saying, how can you possibly do this with all the starving oh, in the do. world? Yeah, but, and, but the thing is, is that just because my, um, the food is not necessarily being eaten, is it, is it necessarily a waste of food? Because if the, if the images are being used in order for teaching programs, if they're being used as they are in childhood obesity clinics, in in children's wards, uh, as murals on walls in eating disorder clinics. Um, they're being kind of, you know, they raise money for charity. They're, uh, if they're doing for advertising purposes, then they're sort of generating income and wealth and helping the economy and creating jobs. So that uh, sort of pile of food that's on a table that, yeah, as I say, most of it does get eaten. But if it, even if it didn't, it's still being put to a much more worthwhile cause than if it just kind of went into someone's stomach. But, you know, that, that's... You know, but I was curious because you know, it's, uh, I find it interesting. Yeah, I, you do get email. I do, yes. I, I do think that it is... You know, that, that what you're doing here is absolutely critical. It is about finding a language, whether the language is visual or whether it's verbal. It's finding language to communicate with, to alter that relationship with, or indeed even create. I mean, what you're saying is that these, these your paintings, your, sorry, your photographs, can be a bridge... For over which you know, the, the um, ideas about food can, be, can actually go. Because I think one of the problems is that we have, we have a society which lectures people uh, about their relationship with food. You should, you must, five a day, hey, two portions of fish, this is what we, we should be doing. And somehow, you know, that, that sort of lecturing, um, uh, hectoring, a manner, I think actually acts as a, as, a, uh, as, a, um, as a deterrent to some people. There was some very interesting research done some years ago about whether people in what used to be known as the lower socioeconomic groups understood the healthy eating message and, if so, why they didn't, um, why they didn't abide by it. And the, and the, and the information came back, the, the research su suggested very strongly, is that people did understand it and, insofar as their children were concerned, tried to get them to eat as healthily as possible within the, the, the circumstances of their, of their incomes. But when it came to them, they felt that food was the only... Th they had so little control over their lives that food was the one thing they controlled, what they ate. So when someone comes along and says, you must, they say, sod off, I'm not doing that. Mm -hmm. Give me that packet of crisps and I'll have another fag if you mm -hmm. don't mind. And it becomes a statement of independence, a statement of personality. Mm -hmm. And until you then frame the argument, frame the discourse in a way that isn't hectoring, lecturing, uh, dictatorial, then I think we're going to stick with where we are. Matthew, you're sounding exactly like a French consumer now that I've been interviewing for ages, revolting, rebelling against the, 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 uh, uh, yes, the hectoring and the tutoring and everything. But, I mean, the reason why... So th there still are differences in this respect. I remember in a focus group in, uh, in Loughborough, uh, we had this gentleman in, who said at one point, it used to be that we felt we were competent as eaters, not anymore. Mm -hmm. And the reason we're being lectured and hectored and everything is that society has changed, the production of food has changed, the relationship to food has changed, 
And we are supposed to make decisions about every single morsel or molecule of food we put into our, into our mouth. And very much more so in the Anglo-Saxon Protestant uh, uh, tradition, in which, of course, I mean, I'm, I'm going to do some very crude theological statements here that... Uh, in the Protestant mind, there is a direct relationship between the person and uh, the higher authority, right? You're responsible individually. In Catholic cultures, it's a common thing. It's a mutual thing, and you can confess, and there are accommodations and arrangements, etc., and so on. And uh, what we find in our surveys is exactly that. There's more individual responsibility, hence guilt and problems, in the Protestant part of the world, historically Protestant, even though there is no more, uh, <clears throat> there's, there is a sort of a, uh, weakening of the, of the faith in those areas. It, it's just the, the historical tradition. And in the Catholic countries, they still, France or Italy or Spain, I should have discussed Italy instead of France. It would have had you worked up in the same way. Um, oh, oh, I don't know. <laughs> but for some reason, there's something about France that uh, uh, is always very touchy here. So let's say the, the, uh, the Italians uh, and the French have this communal uh, view of what eating is. So it's still a collective thing. You cannot, you cannot play... Uh, too much individually. You, have to, you cannot make the statement that you're a vegetarian as freely as you can here. There's 12% vegetarian people here, according to the surveys. And we ask the question in a French survey, are you a vegetarian? We get 2%. <laughs> now, if we ask, agree or disagree with the following statement, I tend to abstain from eating meat, then we get 10%. <laughs> <laughs> so what's the explanation? The explanation is you don't... Uh, show off your difference when it comes to me, to, to eating. You have to be part of the, of the communion. And uh, <clears throat> that's a very fundamental difference. Now, when you're saying it's a class thing and there's constraint, of course there's constraint. I mean, the whole story about food is about constraint, but we have less constraints than ever, and we have more responsibility and choice, no matter what the class is. But the differences are that, of course, there are time constraints, money constraints in the less affluent classes, and still they are supposed to make choices, and they make, in a way, rational choices in the sense of the economists to use rational. What they do, they go for the cheap stuff, uh, the palatable stuff, quote, that's the technical word for uh, sweet, salty, fat, convenient. That is, it comes in a bag, if anything, and all you have to do is... Uh, just open the bag and have the kids eat it in front of the TV so they're less work, less time. And it's, uh, I mean, cynically speaking, it's a rational uh, mm -hmm. behavior. But I would say, but I would argue that actually what we've done is abrogate our responsibilities. We've actually delegated our food choices to the retailers or to someone else. They have to guarantee that the food is what it is on the packet. They have to guarantee that it's safe. We, they tell us how to cook it. They even, you know, they package it for us we, and they sell it to us. We don't really have a choice. We don't have, we don't have the skills needed. We feel we're not competent anymore. Ask anyone, do they know anything about what omega-3 are or uh, whether... Uh, I don't know. I mean, there's too much to know. That's the statement of this, uh, by this British gentleman. He said... Um, 
I'm not a competent. I don't feel competent. So if you're not competent and you keep being told that you're uh, digging your grave with your fork or your teeth, whatever, <laughs> so you have to listen to the uh, uh, hectoring and the lecturing. Sounds to me we've all become Roman Which we Catholic, don't do. Gastronomic Roman Catholics. We've delegated our responsibilities to a higher office. Well, it turns uh, well, out... I, on, the, on the question of vegetarianism in France, it, it could be that the reason only 2% two, 2 of the people identify themselves as vegetarian is that whenever I've ordered a vegetarian dish in France, it's always come with some pork in it. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, uh, really? Carl, uh, I, you've been taking notes. May I? May uh, I yeah, yeah, no, it was just on the, obviously, going back to the kids thing, was, and to answer Claude's question about should we let children play with food, I believe we should let children play with food. Um, I mean, I remember being a sort of a kid in the 70s, being given that sort of horrible shoe leather liver on a plate and, and hiding it under your mashed potatoes. Yes. And, with such, and then to only have the dinner lady's arms come over the top of your head saying, I found it, <laughs> digging it out and a making you finish it. Lady, yeah. French lady, vegetarian French lady, upper class or something, told me the exact same story about the piece of meat that she was trying to trying hide, to hide yes. under her potatoes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but she would never say she was a vegetarian. Right. <laughs> but no, I think it's a healthy thing for children to do. I mean, my wife uh, in the audience here, she used to let my children, our children, sorry, um, <laughs> squidge and play with food, you know, and, and pick it up and handle it and, and let the juices run down to the orange segments and put it in your mouth. And what does that look like? It, the feel and the taste and the look of food. And we, we engage with food, yep. food on an aesthetic level. Uh, and as well, you know, the touching, the feeling, the smelling, it, it's, a, it's a multi-sensory experience which we should encourage. I think a lot of the sort of don't play with your food thing comes because it's, you're, you're disrespecting it and it comes after the war, mm -hmm. got to finish everything on your plate. Yeah. Yeah. And school dinners for me was just the worst thing. A bit, you know, you got dished up this dreadful slop in the 70s and you had to finish it. Mm -hmm. and, and that was torture and mental cruelty. Yep, I mean, yep. um, I mean if, if, uh, my wife's friend used to hold her breath till she turned blue and passed out so she'd get carried out of the, 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 the lunch, the mess hall, you know. Well. <laughs> and so those experiences are terrible. So if children are actually al allowed to play and engage mm -hmm. with food on that level, mm -hmm. I think it is a great starting point in order to change the food culture mm -hmm. and to get uh, a little bit more interaction going and sort of get rid of some of these things that have, yeah. have come from the war and come from where we've been. We need to find new roads and new ways of tackling the problems and I think that this could potentially be a very you know, mm -hmm. good area to start with. But you have to start young and it's kids at a very early age. And even if people can't afford... I mean, I have an American friend who she's Italian. She said, well, you can't say just because you haven't got the money that you can't eat. Well, we're, we're Italians. We were poor. We ate, well, we ate pasta, but we ate it with fresh tomato sauce. We made it together with our mother and even if we made a pizza, it was without all the sugar and salt. You know, we have this issue with the, the... I don't know if anybody watched the programme called The Men Who Made Us Fat, but it, it highlighted the fact that the World Health Organisation were going to have a pot shot at the sugar industry because they were stuffing sugar in, calling it low-fat, and they were th then threatened with re withdrawing the $293 million funding per year to the World yep. Health Organization, yep, yep. and they promptly shut up. I think it discredits them t hugely, mm -hmm. but they probably made a decision for other reasons. But to actually go down fighting and saying, no, we're going to make a difference mm -hmm. here, that would be a good use of a, of a World Health Organization. It, it would indeed. Uh, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Anyway, sorry, I ranted. No, not at all. I mean, we're, we're here to make rants. <laughs> oh, good. Okay. Oh, sorry, the other thing I wrote that's down why you're was, sitting here. was food <laughs> empowerment. Kids are, by, by what was choosing what, they, what we eat, it's an empowerment. And especially for kids, they don't have very much empowerment. So they can actually say, I don't want to eat this. I'm looking at it. I'm reading it. It's full of um, aspartame. I'm not eating that. I know it's bad for me. That's mm-hmm. not good. I want to do this. Mm-hmm. So individual expression, expression of individuality, choices of food, and empowerment. Again, another great thing to give kids. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Great. Uh, well, with that, we've had uh, a, a very, uh, um, if I may again, we've had a very rich banquet of uh, ideas from our, uh, from our panelists. Uh, and uh, we now have time until uh, about 4.30 for some questions uh, from the audience. And let me uh, uh, remind you, as the LSE has instructed me to do, that uh, we're asking questions, not making uh, statements. So uh, uh, we're, we're meant to ask questions that are pithy and brief. Uh, so uh, if the, the microphones are ready to move around, the gentleman in the front. I shall put this in the form of a question. <laughs> Is it possible that in speaking about what, how parents and, and schools can educate children, that we are ignoring the biggest single source of information that children have about food as about everything else, which is the media. Mm -hmm. And it's not even television even more. It's their cell phones. Mm -hmm. And the most highly paid uh, child psychologists in the world are those that are being paid for and employed by the food industry now mm-hmm. to tell them how to manipulate not only children but their parents as well to go along with it. It is like trying to reform the politics of an Italian village that's actually being run by the mafia. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, that's, a, that's a fantastic question. How, how do we... Uh, yes, I, uh, the LSE informs me I'm supposed to repeat the question, so let me, let me try and give that a, uh, 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 a repetition, which is uh, if we are going to change attitudes, if we're going to take care of kids and food, how do we um, change... How do we combat uh, the vast uh, propaganda um, that they encounter, if that's a fair restatement? Uh, anyone on the panel want to take a crack at that? Matthew, you, 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 you're in the media. <laughs> it's all my fault. I knew it, I knew it. When I first started writing about food about 20-odd years ago, I had this great missionary instinct. I wanted everybody to enjoy and get as much out of food as I, as I did. And 20 years on, I realised that I'm pushing water uphill with my nose. So I have not one ambition. If I can persuade one person, but a child in particular, to eat one thing, that they would not have eaten before, then I feel that I've done a good deed in a naughty world. And that's about the best I could offer, I'm afraid. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't... I mean, I think that, you know, that the commercial interests are so colossal in terms of uh, you know, keeping us uh, in chains to, you know, to, to, to uh, basically processed foods that the only organisations which have the power to resist that are governments... And governments simply aren't um, in, the, in the business, frankly, um, as you can see from Sir Michael Wilshaw, uh, of, of actually doing that. 
So I, I'm, I'm profoundly pessimistic about it. I mean, in the end, it's down to us. We can make food choices. I mean, Carl's right is, is that, um, you know, that, that individuals should take responsibility. But how you encourage that process, I'm afraid I can't give you the answer. Well, I'm profoundly optimistic about what the project I'm involved with because it is a transmedia um, initiative. So children engaging with apps on their phones or internet portals or the TV. I mean, the TV has just become one small segment of things which kids are now ignoring and they're not interested. They've got their, their laptops and their phones are much more engaging for them. And gone are the days when Matthew and I were little boys. It was kind of uh, four channels to watch and everything could be... You, you could target your audience very clearly. So, yes, you have to see where children are looking and you have to see what they're engaging with and then give them something which is... Uh, you know, uh, an interactive teaching model module that's not sort of didactic, that's just kind of engaging them and, and uh, let them explore and really get involved in it. And as a form of expression, as a bit of art, there's, there's lots going for it and there's some amazing ideas that, that we've got to actually kind of implement that, those initiatives. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, someone in the, the man in the middle there? Hello, I'd like to go back to fashion and uh, l'entente cordiale. Um, can you hear me? Yep. Uh, yep. Um, as, uh, as a Frenchman who's lived here for more than my life, I've, I'm always surprised by the fundamental difference in interest in food uh, between uh, my British uh, colleagues and, and my, my French compatriots. And if you look at the countries, you know, same geography, same forests, same, you know, same coastlines, and lots of interactions from the Normans onwards. Uh, can, when, we get, can we get to your question, yeah. please? So the yeah. question is, when, you know, was there ever a time in terms of history or anthropology when the two countries had similar interests in food and then outside religion, which has been already evoked, where did that branch out? Where did, when did that branch out? Mm-hmm. Okay, the, uh, the question, as I understand it, is uh, <clears throat> was there a greater similarity at any point uh, in history between attitudes towards food uh, uh, in France and England. Uh, Claude, do you want to give that? Well, I'm not a historian, but from what I read from historians, the answer is no. I mean, there must have been one point in 1066 or so, but uh, uh, basically, if you read Stephen Menel, if you read uh, Stearns I mentioned, uh, you find that the differences are, are constant, that on the one side, it's about thrift, uh, good housekeeping, uh, and then later on, health. And when we run our comparative studies, Paul Rosen, my American friend and colleague, and I, uh, we have a British, American, French, uh, several nationalities, even Japanese, etc. It always comes out uh, very different, and along the same differences, there's more interest in the um, taste uh, with the French than when, with the English-speaking countries, let's say, with differences between Americans and English, and British, of course, but basically. Let me give you an example. Uh, there's, we found very early on that the French tended to think about food in terms culinary when we asked them questions, open-ended questions, some in nutritional terms, dietetic, okay? So an example for a dietetic response is what type of food does one eat in your home? Uh, Dietetic would be, oh, it's very, uh, you know, the heavy traditional thing with a lot of this and a lot of that, etc. 
And the culinary would be, well, you know, we eat standard uh, uh, Norman cuisine or uh, that sort of thing. Okay. So it didn't work with Americans or Englishmen because when we translated, well, quel genre de cuisine fait-on chez vous? What type of cooking does one do in your home? We get answers, we would get answers like, uh, we don't cook. <laughs> so uh, we phrased it differently, it didn't work. And then we got the idea, we did, here are three words, tell us the two that go best together. And the first example we had was, uh, oh yeah, no, there was another one. Chocolate cake, birthday, guilt. This was with Americans. So the two that went best together to Americans were guilt and chocolate cake, and it was birthday and chocolate cake to the French. Quite a And then we had bread, pasta, sauce. So let's see, what happened? What would you say? Bread, pasta, and sauce. Which are the two words that go best together? After that, I'll tell you the French response. Pasta and bread. Pasta and sauce. Where are you from? Okay. All right. Anyone else? Pasta and sauce? Bread and sauce in France. Well, in France, it's pasta and sauce or bread and sauce. And 50-something percent, 55 or 56 percent of the American sample would respond with pasta and bread. (laughs) (laughs) Because there are carbs. So it's a nutritional response, you see. So that's the kind of difference you find. And no matter how you look, what kind of method, and you always consistently find more anxiety, more guilt, uh, more concern about food. It's not that people are not worried about chemicals and food. We know this, uh, uh, George Gaskell and I, because we, we, we were part of a Euro barometer survey that showed that the major concern among 35,000 Europeans was chemicals and food, basically. But, again, these concerns are modulated according to local cultures, and they're sort of phrased in a different way. Uh, Thanks. Uh, Can we get another uh, question from uh, the lady in the pink? And my question is quite simple because nowadays we've we got too much knowledge about food and the eating is actually in the manner of calculating if calories, if sodiums, if carbon dioxide and it, it kind of deprives us of like the real pleasure of eating. So how do you see this? How can we regain this kind of pleasure in eating? out of this sort of calculation. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I understand the question to be, how do we go beyond the analytic understanding of food back to real pleasure? Uh, who would like to take a crack at that? Well, I always find that alcohol is a tremendously <laughs> bridge between the two experiences. It blurs my memory of the analytical side and it acts as a, a very soothing way of getting the food. Um, I think that's about it, really. I'm not sure that anyone's going to do better than that. Would anyone like to try? <laughs> I was just going to Go add, um, my way of dealing with that is I just don't care. I really, I don't count calories, I don't care what goes in it, I don't mind if I add some cream and butter. Um, I try and do some exercise. I just like eating food. <laughs> I think there should be a simple mantra. I think, you know, it's just eat better, eat less. Mm-hmm. 
Even if it's, I've, I've always had, I've had no problem with the first part. I do have a considerable problem with the second part of that proposition. But nevertheless, I think as a general principle, I give it to everybody, eat better, eat less. Great. Uh, let's see, uh, lady here. <laughs> My question. Yes, yeah, fine. Yeah, it's okay. My question is about um, food and tourism. Actually, do you think that has become fashionable as well? And um, I'm especially wondering whether, like, this whole eating together and commensality in France and Italy is contributing to this. To, food I, and I tourism. missed a word. To to what? Eating together, commensality. Yeah, it contributing, it's contributing to. Contributing to like the Italian France becoming way more popular. For food tourism. Oh, food tourism. Okay. Uh -huh. So the uh, question of food tourism uh, uh, and uh, what is contributing to it and is it a good or bad thing? Where was it about commensality? Because that's one of my uh, favorite topics. Uh, okay. Uh, I think the question was, uh, is that what is appealing to people when they do food tourism to Italy or France? I don't know about that. Yes, it certainly is appealing. Uh, but uh, the fact is that... Uh, all right, let, let me put it in a very crude way. Countries that uh, um, eat more together commensally in meals, spend more time eating. I, I have some beautiful slides I can show you about this. Um, <clears throat> that uh, do not snack, apparently, between meals, etc., tend to have less obesity. Mm -hmm. And in spite of what Matt was, uh, Matthew was uh, hinting at, uh, and sounded exactly, you sounded exactly like my American nutritionist friends 25 years ago saying that the French are leaner, but it's only a temporary uh, lag. Uh, so 20 years later, it hasn't so happened. It may happen in the near future. Uh, I cannot guarantee it will not happen. It will probably happen, but why hasn't it happened before? And one of the reasons, apparently, is cultural regulation, let's put it this way, of individual behavior through commensality. If you eat with other people, you tend to adjust to the way other people are eating. So you may overeat, but you may also regulate yourself uh, and model or uh, model the rest. You're not going to make a pig of yourself, obviously, if the rest of the group. We know, for instance, that if you put an obese person with lean people at the table, he or she will eat less. If you put a woman with a, with males or, or a male, she will eat less. That sort of thing. And we know also that in other situations, people together tend to eat more. But basically, this has not been studied yet by nutritionists, and I think it's an interesting uh, hmm. uh, way of looking at things. Very, so uh, tourism or not tourism, but uh, commensality. Did, uh, uh, you were challenged. Do you have a response, Matthew? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I'm sure it's true of, um, of uh, adult French and Italians, but the fact is among children, we're already, you're beginning to see increasing signs of obesity among French children and Italian children, simply because I mean, they don't eat together, they eat on their own, and also they're not taking as much exercise as they're... Mm. Uh, and they're also, because both parents are going off to work, um, increasingly having to feed on, um, on uh, ready meals. I, you know, I, I'm, you know, I'm, I think it, it, it is changing, it's changing much more slowly, but I do believe that it's rather like a fist being gradually unclenched, you know, that the power... Of, uh, of, of social pressure and the power of retailing, the power of homogenisation and globalisation is extremely difficult for societies mm. to resist. And I, and I, 
And I'd like to see, I'd like to think there was a, a counter power, but I can't actually see it at the moment. We, we have... Uh, sorry. Uh, we have time for another question. This gentleman has been patiently waiting. For uh, Monsieur Fischler, um, here they talk about the French paradox, and in France I think it's more specific, the paradox Gascon, about fat food, fatty food, but drank with good wine, I mean eaten, sorry, with good wine, and what is the latest research on that, please? And, and then if you can add in about Cheval, I will be pleased. <laughs> okay. Uh, so so uh, if I can repeat the question. So how do, how do we get the, uh, how do we enjoy the food of Gascony, which is delightfully rich, uh, and uh, horse meat and feel good about ourselves? Good. Well, it does to be No, I mean, we're not, I, don't, I didn't use the term French paradox. And uh, if you look at the literature in detail, you see that it's over. Uh, it was a statistical artifact, more or less. I mean, uh, but, but the fact is that the French are leaner uh, than the rest of uh, the Europeans. Uh, they have less obesity. They have less uh, uh, overweight. They have more underweight, uh, interestingly enough. That isn't often mentioned, except by the lady who wrote French women don't get fat, which <laughs> happens to be true, because we have, uh, again, more... Underweight is uh, 18.5 BMI or less, and that's part of the diagnosis for uh, anorexia nervosa. Mm -hmm. So we have a majority of these uh, uh, people who are under, underweight, who are women, actually, 80 or 90%. So there is something specific, uh, both in France and in Italy. It's more complicated to analyze in Italy because of the difference between north and south, child obesity problem in Italy seems to be uh, more in the south, uh, as far as I know. It's not as bad as they feared it was, it was um, five years ago in France. Actually, now the novel, the news is they've tamed it, thanks to the policy of the government. Um, <clears throat> I tend to be skeptical about these things. But if there is a French paradox, it's, it's the thing about uh, how come there has been less uh, uh, increase in obesity than in similar countries, in countries with similar standard of living. That's the real paradox or question, and that's what we're looking at. Mm -hmm. I just, uh, unfortunately, it, it is that slimness doesn't necessarily, necessarily mean that you live any longer than, than other people in other parts of the world. Because I think that liver disease takes its it takes its uh, <laughs> its toll in other ways. In other way, in other words, yeah, actually, well, they're, they're not listening to you enough in France because the alcohol consumption is going down. You know, wine consumption is going down. If anything, the number of total abstainers of wine is increasing across generations, which is reassuring and worrying at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note of both reassurance uh, and worrying. Uh, uh, I need to bring our proceedings to close. We've reached our time. Uh, uh, let me uh, remind you that our uh, panelists' books uh, are on sale in the lobby, and they would be delighted to sign for you. Uh, and I hope you'll join me in uh, uh, deep thanks for our panelists.